Welcome back to our course on reading the Bible for all it's worth. I am going to pause in this session, and um, we should be going on into the preparation, observation, interpretation, meditation, application phases. But I want to pause here because we talked about the Bible as a divine and human book. Um, we ended up saying, basically, that um, you know that it's... it's uh, inerrant in its original manuscripts, right? And, and, and we've been talking about, like, you know, how, how, did, how did the Bible come to us? How did it get recorded as a canon? And so I want to pause here, and this session will be about sort of explaining um, my belief uh, that we can trust our Bibles, okay? And so that's the question I want to raise. Can we trust our Bibles? Not, not just like some hypothetical Bible that was written thousands of years ago as an original manuscript, but the Bible that we actually have now, can we trust it, Okay. So here's why this matters. The Bible is of the utmost importance to Christians, right? It's our foundation for life and for godliness. It's the source of our beliefs about God, about ourselves, and about our world. And so the primary place that we go to hear the voice of God is is the Bible, right? God speaks, I think, in other ways, too. He he, um, speaks directly into our hearts, and He speaks to us through other people, but the Bible is this primary place. So whether your Bible is, like, dusty or well-worn because you read it all the time, right, the Bible still is essential to our lives as Christians. And, and obviously, the whole point of this course is I'm trying to push us to say, read your Bible more and more and more. There's so much life there, and there's so much more we can do to get out, stuff out of it. But question is, can we trust it? Can we trust the Bible that we have right now? So I think most of us would say yes to that question. Um, and But I would also say, I think most Christians would be hard-pressed to explain why they believe the Bible is trustworthy, right? So skeptics will often tell us that the Bible is unreliable, that it's been copied, it's been recopied so many times it can't be trusted the Bible's been changed by human beings. It's old-fashioned. It's irrelevant for today. Um, there's so many accusations that we hear, and we tend to brush them aside. But deep down, I think many of us feel uneasy about that, right? You brush it aside, eh, no big deal. But sometimes those things stick, and you start to wonder, can I trust my Bible? Okay? I'm here to say, absolutely, you can. I, I think you can. I, I think there's a faith commitment that comes into play with all that, and I'll explain that as we walk through this. But um, what I basically want to do is I want to address six questions, okay? Six really important questions about how we got our Bibles. Um, they're not going to be thorough answers, all right? Um, but my prayer is basically this is going to get you thinking and help us to kind of orient ourselves to some resources where you can find longer answers. So I, I just want to say, first off, I mean, things like um, Tim, Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, has some great stuff on can you trust your Bible. Um, people like, you know, Lee Strobel, um, Case for Christ, Case for Faith, he'll talk about the Bible in there. Um, uh, there's all kinds of great books out there. Okay, so l- let me let me throw these six questions that I want to address in this session for you. Um, first of all, hasn't the Bible been changed over time? Second of all, doesn't the Bible contain errors? Third, how do we know the Bible is Scripture? Fourth, who put the Bible together? Fifth, how do we know we got the right books in our Bible? And sixth, what gives the Bible its authority? So we'll take them each in turn. First of all, I want to touch on, hasn't the Bible been changed over time? So two accusations about the Bible go hand in hand. One is that the Bible contains errors, and that's something we'll get to in just a minute. The other is that the Bible has been changed over time. So Christians have historically believed that the Bible is inerrant, right? That, that Which we talked about before, it means it contains no errors. So if the Bible does contain errors, right? Historical errors, scientific errors, self-contradiction errors, if so, and if the Bible has been changed, then there's a problem with our basic beliefs. But I don't think we really do have that problem. So, first of all, it's important to clarify that when we're saying the Bible's inerrant, we've already said this, but when we say the Bible's inerrant, we mean it contains no errors in the original manuscripts. So, we don't have any of the original manuscripts for any of the books of the Bible. 
Um, and that, that seems probably honestly like a good thing that we don't because think how easy it would be to make them an object of worship, uh, an idol, if we had an actual manuscript in, in um, Moses' handwriting, right? Um, but we do have many, and like I mean that, like many, many, many manuscripts that are very old, but none that are original. So if we find a mistake here and there, like reading through and find some minor inconsistencies, I don't think we have to be unsettled. We're only claiming inerrancy for the original documents. Okay, so I say that, and I acknowledge a couple of those things are scary. Okay, so I think it's scary to say we don't have any, any of the original manuscripts. I think it's scary for some, too, to say these manuscripts can contain minor errors, okay? But don't be afraid. Like, honestly, have a lot of confidence still, because in reality, the diversity of the manuscripts that we currently possess actually strengthens our reliability of Scripture. I, I really believe that. So early on, the books of the New Testament were copied, translated into, like, Coptic, Syrian, that kind of a thing, copied, translated, and spread across the known world. So if something, if someone was going to tamper with the words of scripture, they had a very, very narrow time frame in which to do it. Does that make sense? It, saying, you know, if, if the manuscripts have been changed, they had to do it right away because almost instantly they're copied, translated, spread across the world, and you can't change all those copies everywhere, right? Um, the reality is that we have many manuscripts in a handful of languages. So there are families, they call them families of Greek manuscripts that are very similar to one another. So there's a Coptic family, a Syriac family, um, those kinds of things. There's also families of um, of like, you know, just different, different language groups and different like ones that seem to have been copied from each other that have been spread around. They're all very, very similar to one another, okay? So putting that in perspective, there's somewhere um, above like, 20,000 manuscripts of all or portions of the New Testament that are in like museums and collections around the world. 20,000 manuscripts. That is so many. Not all of them are all of the New Testament, but there's portions, right? Um, and so if that doesn't sound impressive, like here's the, here's like to put it into cons- consideration, many of the other works that we have from the ancient world were, are considered reliable, even though they're based on more than like, no more than like a few different manuscripts. And that that's like, so there's a huge, huge, huge bit of um, scholarship and, and, and actual possession of manuscripts that we actually have. So the impressive thing is that these diverse manuscripts agree with each other more than 99% of the time. And let me just say that again, more than 99% of the time. So Bible spread around the world. It was translated into a handful of languages. It was copied like crazy. And all of these copies and translations agree with one another almost completely, less than 1% disagreement. So I think that less than 1% disagreement is not scary in number or in the content, right? So it's important. We need to know this. Not like we know exactly where these discrepancies are located. So you can see them as you're reading your Bible. So most English translations mark them with footnotes and indicate like some manuscripts say blank. Um, so we know right where they are. We're not left wondering like, is it saying that, you know, like something crazy? Um, no, it's just saying little details and we know exactly where they are. So if we pay attention while we read these things, you're going to find that they're rare and that none of them are very significant. Um, and we get down to question four, I want to talk about the um, Old Testament more, but it's worth noting here, like there's the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls um, that happened not long ago. So these scrolls, they discovered in 1948, all right, they found all these scrolls in caves near the Dead Sea. It contained a whole lot of things, but significantly, archaeologists found several copies of the Old Testament in these caves in 1948. Prior to their discovery, the oldest manuscript of the Old Testament that we had dated to around 1000 AD. Now, that's super old still, but it's not anywhere near 
um, how old the, the, the Old Testament was. So it's kind of late for those books. But the Dead Sea Scrolls, when we discovered them in 1948, they were dated to around 200 BC. And that's huge. That's so important. So check this out. Our most recent, our oldest manuscripts of the Old Testament were like 1000 AD. Now we're finding some that were sealed, hidden in caves around 2000 BC, written, sealed up, hiding in darkness long before Jesus and his followers were even born and then waiting to be discovered in the 20th century. So in many cases, these Old Testament scrolls match our Bibles very, very closely. Okay. In some cases, the scrolls differ a little bit. Okay. And what that means, and like scholars weren't surprised by this, is that there's a handful of textual traditions where they were in circulation, um, like some different kind of variations, even at that early date. And we already knew that. Okay. Um, But the finding confirms that our Old Testament hasn't been reworked wholesale since the time of Christ. Okay. But we'll talk a little bit more about that in uh, the fourth question. But for all these reasons, I just want to say, I believe that we can be confident the Bible has that we have now matches the Bible that the inspired authors actually wrote. All right. Does it matter? Like if the original manuscripts contain errors, like we can't trust our Bibles. And so here's what we need to talk about next. I think they're reliable. They match the originals. But question number two is this. Doesn't the Bible contain errors? Because if we have a reliable manuscript that still contains errors, that's a problem. Okay. So now we've all heard examples of the Bible contradicting itself or saying something historically accurate. But here's basically what we'll say in this short amount of time. None of these have to be contradictions, okay? So there's some that are possible contradictions or that some that seem to be contradictions, but they don't have to be, okay? So let me, let me give you some examples. So there's a few places where two different authors describe the same event, and in doing so, they kind of give different numbers to the same feature of the story. Um, so when we do this, you know, it's like counting cattle or, or um, members of an army or something like that. And these things could be. Like when we come across these things, we have to make a, a decision about what's going on in the case because they could be contradictions or they could be instances of these textual textual variants that I just said, you know, a manuscript differs from another. Or it could be that one account is being precise while the other one's being rounded off, right? Or it could be that two similar or not identical events are being described and the numbers aren't meant to correlate. And so I'm saying all that not to address any one specific case of it, but just to say we have to be careful about saying, well, these two things are different, therefore... Um, you know, therefore it's, it's a contradiction. Not necessarily. It doesn't have to be. Okay. So here, here's like a, another great example. A, a similar disfer- dis- discrepancy comes with the death of Judas Iscariot. So after he betrayed Jesus, he died soon afterwards. Matthew says that he hanged himself. Luke says that he fell and burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. So what's going on there? I, honestly, I don't know, right? We don't know exactly what happened, but it doesn't have to take too much imagination to picture G- Judas like hanging himself and then the branch breaks and his, you know, his entrails go gushing out or whatever. Like, who knows? I, I don't know if that's how it went down, but I'm just saying the two accounts aren't necessarily incompatible. You could pitch them as that, but they don't have to be. Um, others are going to point to the color of the, the robe that the Romans put around Jesus before crucifixion, right? Matthew said it's scarlet. John says it's purple. So the question I have is like, are the colors so different that two people watching the same event might not describe it as scarlet or purple, like depending on who you are and how you view color and like what you remember and all that kind of stuff. It doesn't seem like that big of a thing to me. So the point is they don't have to be contradictions. We may not be able to prove that they're not, um, but we also can't prove that they are, right? Um, and so there's good reasons, um, reasonable alternatives uh, to, like, alternative to not saying it's a contradiction. So another people that another reason that people don't, um, like, 
love the accuracy of the Bible or they they accuse it of being inaccurate is the portrayal of miraculous events. Okay, so this is, I think, fairly common. Modern skeptics don't tend to believe in the supernatural, right? And so they're going to read that and you see Jesus raising the dead, walking on water. And then you say, well, obviously that didn't happen because the dead can't be raised and people don't walk on water, right? So the, the only reason that's a problem, right? The only reason that accusation stands is if we assume that like what the Bible describes is inherently impossible. And I believe that the supernatural happens, right? God works and is capable of supernatural. So that's a different kind of error interpretation um, that a lot of people will cut out of their Bibles. But it, it is, um, I, I've seen miracles in my own life. I think many of us have, right? So another approach is people have questioned the Bible on the grounds that much of its content can't be historically or archaeologically verified, and so that question has been around for a long time, but honestly, the Bible has never been proven inaccurate through history or archaeology, right? Um, people argue there's no evidence for this or that portion of scripture, but then years later, on, that's happened several times, evidence turns up later. Like we found the, the city of Jericho and things like that, right? So we can, we can be excited when archaeology confirms a biblical description. We shouldn't forget that, man, the absence of collaborating evidence does not equal inaccuracy. It's not the same thing. So the takeaway I have is basically people are always going to make accusations against the Bible. That's fine. Um, there's answers out there to that. So skeptics are going to be skeptics, right? But we can answer their questions. And honestly, like maybe maybe not to say this is exactly what happened, but there's always these great uh, plausible things. So if you want to dig more into that kind of a thing, even going like on a case by case basis, like a few great books. Um, I mentioned already the case for Christ by Lee Strobel. Um, Josh McDowell has like a evidence or new evidence that demands a verdict book, um, like, uh, Grudem or any other systematic theology, um, will have a, a section, uh, Grudem section is called the doctrine of the word of God has like a lot of helpful stuff in it there. Um, John frame has a great book, um, called the doctrine of the word of God that gets a little more technical, philosophical, but it's really thorough and really excellent. So. All right, so first two questions down. Um, there's still a few more to go here. Um, so because some skeptics try to cast doubt on the Bible by pointing to the process by which it was compiled into a single book, that's our next question. So here it is, question three. How do we know that the Bible is scripture? Okay, so we're kind of addressing these things in turn. So now here's the question, like how, how do we know that the Bible is actually scripture, actually written by God? So my claim is that God wrote the Bible, and, and more specifically, as I've said in previous sessions, that God inspired human, human authors to write each of the 66 books contained in our Bibles. But as we've already said too, God didn't lower the completed Bible from the heavens as a leather-bound, double-columned book, right, that, that we know of it. So the Bible's unique, written over the course of 1,500 years by more than 40 different authors from backgrounds as diverse as prophets, doctors, tax collectors, kings, right? Written in Greek and Hebrew with a little bit of Aramaic as well. We've talked about all this in the previous session, but it shows it's diverse. And so, how did all these diverse writings come to be bound together as like the best-selling book of all time? So first, let's take the Old Testament. Old Testament canon, and, and the word canon is basically just means the collection of authoritative books that make up our Bibles. Um, canon means like a rule. And so we call it the Old Testament or the New Testament or the biblical canon, okay? The Old Testament canon has been pretty well established for a long time, all right? So um, basically, like, I, I want to follow the approach that Tim Keller lays out. Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God, he gives this um, basic approach saying, basically, we begin with the view of Jesus and the apostles regarding the Old Testament, and then we go from there. So that's the question. How, how do we look at the 
Old Testament the way that Jesus and the apostles did. So, the books we have in our Old Testament had all been written for centuries before Jesus arrived on earth, all right? And they're collected into three parts. This is like very well attested. Three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. So, Jesus not only affirmed the validity and authority of most of the books individually, but he actually quoted, like he, he quoted from every Old Testament book except for Esther, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. So that, that, I just like pause for a second. That's crazy. Jesus actually quoted from every book of the Old Testament except for Esther, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. And I still like all three of those books, so let's keep them. But that's, that's phenomenal. That's huge, right? So not only did Jesus affirm these books by quoting from them, he also affirmed the three parts of the Old Testament canon. Remember we said law, prophets, writing. So here's Jesus in Luke 24, 27. It says, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in the scriptures the things concerning himself. So here we have Moses and the prophets, right? And he's, he's talking about the scriptures, right? Luke 24, 44, then Jesus said to them, these are my words that I have spoken to you while I was with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so you see the idea, the Old Testament in all, all its three parts, law, prophets, or writings, and Psalms. That's the canon accepted by the Jews, affirmed then by Jesus in the New Testament, Okay. So, um, you know, and, and as kind of an aside here, but a question that a lot of people have is like, how does the Apocrypha in? So the Apocrypha is like, is in the Roman Catholic Bible. Okay. It adds another like 14 or 15 books. Um, but even that wasn't like officially in, included until 1546. That's a long time later. Um, we don't have those books in our Protestant Bible. So a very simplistic explanation is the Protestants follow what we, what's called the Palestinian canon. Um, it rose in Palestine, it was written in Hebrew and accepted by the Jews, okay? But Roman Catholics, on the other hand, um, they follow what's called the Alexandrian canon, which, as the name implies, was rose in Alexandria, Egypt, based on a Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, okay? So, it's pretty simple. Like, the Protestants are saying, yeah, we'll go with the Hebrew one that was kind of in play at the time in Palestine, and at some point later, the... Um, Catholic Church was like, no, we want to go with the Greek Alexandrian translation of the Hebrew scriptures. So, it's very complex. I'm, I'm definitely oversimplifying, but um, basically, we choose to leave out those extra books, okay? doesn't make the Apocrypha useless, but it does mean, for me, definitely, the, the Apocrypha is not scripture, okay? So, um, it's not bad. You can read them. There's great history and there's cool stories. There's, there's stories of God's faithfulness and stuff. We just don't want to put them on the same level as scripture. Okay, so now turning to the New Testament. First, important to take note of the way that the New Testament authors viewed the Old Testament, okay? So, look, they, they looked at these books as a collection of authoritative documents that God himself had written, all right? That's super important. Paul refers to the Old Testament as scripture, all right? That's huge. He says that it's able to make a person wise for salvation, and then he explains that scripture is actually breathed out by God. He does all this in 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16, Okay. So, Paul looks at the Old Testament, says it's scripture, it can make you wise for salvation, and it's actually breathed out by God. Peter then, in 2 Peter 1, says, no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, here he's saying, like, this is how they viewed, like, scripture, God's words written in the Old Testament, is it didn't come from someone's interpretation, but it's produced by God carrying along people by the Holy Spirit. So, the New Testament authors, what this means is that they believe that there was such a thing as scripture, a category for that, right? Which they defined as authoritative documents written by human beings under the guidance of the Spirit of God. 
And so here, here now we, here we go. So here we go. This is their view of what scripture looks like. And then they were conscious. And here's what's fascinating. They were conscious that they too were writing scripture as well. And so Peter in 2 Peter 3.16, he refers to Paul's writings as scripture, places these writings on the same level as the Old Testament. He says, you know, there's things in Paul's writing that are hard to understand as there are in the rest of the scriptures. That's a huge statement for people that had that category of scripture and wouldn't have taken it lightly for him to acknowledge it like that. So, um, there's another interesting passage in 1 Timothy 5, 18, where basically Paul cites two quotations as scripture. He says, for the scripture says two things. One, you shall not muzzle an ox when it trains out the grain. And two, the laborer deserves his wages. So, what's interesting is the first citation that Paul gives in calling these both scripture is Deuteronomy 25, 4. Okay. And the second quotation is from Jesus in Luke 10, 7. And so, Paul, side by side in 1 Timothy 5, 18, Side by side, scripture says this thing and this thing. And the first one was taken from Deuteronomy. The second is taken from Luke. That's huge. So the verse reveals basically that the early church saw both the Old and New Testaments as scripture. Um, And it's worth noting that like these New Testament letters sometimes end with a, a directive, like a instruction to have the letter spread around and read in various churches. And that, that, that practice basically showed they're like on par with scripture because that's what the Jews would do with scripture in their synagogues. Okay. So here's, here's where we've come so far. Like God's people have long believed that there is such a thing as scripture. They believe that the old Testament ought to be considered scripture and they believe that their new Testament writings ought to be considered scripture as well. All right. But here's the hard thing. And then why we have to keep going into other questions, right? It still took uh, like centuries for these 27 books that make it up our new Testament to be gathered together under the same like table of contents and leather binding. Okay. So we want to use the next, the next question to examine how that came to be, who bundled them together and placed them at the end of our old testaments. So question four, who put the Bible together? Really important. So, okay, we've already explained that as New Testament, New Testament books were written, they were recognized as scripture and they were spread from church to church. They even said, you know, have this read in, in these other churches as well. But even so, they're being, they're being spread somewhat independently, okay? So, like Paul would write Ephesians, send it somewhere. He'd write First Thessalonians, send it somewhere. And so, they're kind of being distributed independently and there's no official like table of contents for the New Testament by that point. But what we can see is that the church recognized that these writings were sacred. We've already talked about this a little bit. They're written by the apostles and their close associates, and the texts were passed around from church to church, okay? And basically, these, the teaching of these books formed a foundation for the early church. So, Ephesians 2.20, Paul says, like, there's this foundation from the apostles and prophets that's being led, that the church is being built up on. So... Not a uniformity of opinion over which books were in and which were out at, at first, but it does seem like early Christians had a sense of like what the New Testament was, like a foundation of apostolic teaching that was getting spread around. Um, now, there was a heretic named Marcion, like not too long after the New Testament was written, he proposed like a table of contents that was basically wrong. Okay, part of Luke was... Um, in it and 10 of Paul's letters were in it, like so much left out. But Marcion's like, here is the, this is the New Testament. Um, but what happens is like that gave the church then some motivation to say, no, 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 hang on, let's get a more accurate list than that. And so um, there's also like a bunch of persecution at the time that pushed the church to say, okay, if we're going to die for books of the New Testament, let's make sure we're clear on which ones those are. Um, and so like Emperor Diocletian around that time ordered all the sacred books to be burned. 
And so Christians had to decide, like, which books are scripture and which ones do we risk our lives to protect, okay? But even so, not an official list of New Testament books for a couple of centuries. So what did they do in the meantime? Like, as far as we can tell, and, and, and like, who knows exactly, right? But as far as we can tell, they continue to just, like, follow scripture. Um, like, each church meant, like, definitely the Old Testament and then whatever New Testament books that they had, right? So early on, like, every church seemed to have been aware of, like, some but not all of the New Testament books. And so um, eventually what happens is, like, church leaders begin discussing this. And, and as I said, like, persecution and stuff played a role in that, but begin discussing the New Testament canon in order to settle it, okay? Let's, let's like, get a council together and let's settle this thing. So they looked at all the books that different churches considered scripture, and they kind of put them into three categories. So first is like acknowledged books. And these are like the clearly authentic ones that apostolic authority was clear. It's written by a known apostle or a close associate of one. Um, secondly, like disputed books. Okay. So these are ones whose authenticity um, or like authority was like less than clear. Okay. So like um, a disputed book whose authenticity was challenged is like Second Peter. They're like, we're not really sure if that was really written by Peter. And so it was put it in the disputed books, right? Um, or like the apostolic authority of the book is challenged. Like James, Second John, Third John, Jude briefly were in that category of like, mm, this is disputed. Like, do, do they really have this apostolic, apostolic authority to them? Um, and then the third category was heretical books, okay, which were like known, like this one's a fake, this one's inauthentic, or it contains teaching that contradicts the rest of scripture. There's been a weird move to like um, Gnostic gospels and things like that, but they're just so bizarre in their teaching and don't fit at all. And, and they're just, they're, you know, so few copies and all those kinds of things. So basically when these church leaders are like looking um, like for which books, um, like they, they wanted to find like the books that authenticated themselves, right? Like they had the authority of God behind them and the books that the church had incorporated into its public worship. So the idea is like the church is then acknowledging through its practices that these books were on the same level as the Old Testament, okay? And they were looking for books that could be linked to the apostles and their associates. So th those are the kind of three things that they were looking for when they finally kind of got all the big wigs together to say like, hey, let's all agree on this. So, it, it, like, it's wrong to say that the church leaders sat down and created scripture in the fourth century. Like, that just did not happen. But, um, like, they, they didn't put together an authoritative list of books that should be considered scripture. Um, that, like, the Roman Catholic view is that that's what happened. Like, it's the church that made the Bible the Bible. But that's just not it. Like, instead, what really happened is church leaders asked which books were authoritative, and they made a list based on their findings, right? And that distinction, I think, is super important. The, the authority doesn't come from the leaders making the list. The authority comes in the New Testament books themselves, and the church leaders simply acknowledge like, which books clearly had that authority. Um, so here, here's a little quote from John Frame that I, I find really helpful here. There, he says, the Roman churches claim that the authority of the canon rests on that church's pronouncement. But first, the church's conviction on this matter, unanimous since AD 367, precedes any statement by a Roman Catholic pope or council. And second, as we, um, he's like talking about in his book, like, um, he says, as we've seen, God intends to rule his church by a book, not a church authority. I think both of those are really important things. And so what eventually happened is that in 367 AD, Athanasius, a church leader, wrote down a list of 27 books that we now have in our New Testament, and basically it didn't create a scandal. Everyone's like, yeah, no, yeah, totally. It was basically understood that like these are the books that had proven themselves as scripture. So 
The Bible didn't come to us through manipulative religious types who wanted to dominate history by choosing only the books that fit their agenda, as some you know claim today. But the Bible consists of the words that God wrote through human authors, words that were recognized as God's words by God's people, words that were eventually bound together in a single volume for our benefit. All right, so there's four important questions down, and agree or disagree, that's totally fine. But a couple more questions that we have left, like, are we sure that we got all of the right books, right? Or, or maybe, like, did we happen to include a wrong book? Um, and so we have to kind of balance that a little bit. So question five, how do we know we got the right books? So qu- very simple answer to this. I would just say the information above is basically, everything we've talked about is basically evidence that the books in the Bible actually belong there. And, and, and what I'm referring to there is just saying, the church did its homework, right? Um, they looked at what was happening. So when the time came to write down a complete list of New Testament books, God's people looked at which books carried the authority of God and were being accepted and used by the church in its life and worship on the same level that they used the Old Testament scripture. So I think there's good historical reasons to see that the right books were chosen. But then, then there's this theological conviction that I hold. And and it's simply this, God is sovereign. I believe that God is sovereign. And so if he wanted to speak words to his people, he's capable of ensuring that we'd end up with the right, the right words and not the wrong words. Okay. Um, Now I know that that doesn't satisfy everybody and that's fine. Um, But like I said, I think the historical arguments stand on their own feet. And my conviction is that the God, like God's successfully superintended the writing collection and preserving of his word. And I, I basically, I, there is faith involved in this for me, and I don't want to be afraid to acknowledge that. And I think it's important to um, be honest about what our faith commitments is, where our assumptions are, and how we're deciding on these things. But with that, how do we know that we're not missing any books from the Bible? So again, I want to argue that because God is faithful to his people, he would not have spoken words that were essential for our life and growth and then allowed those words to be lost. Like I, I just, I don't see that happening. So the confidence in the faithfulness of God, I think is backed up by like the historical research. So some people have said like, let's add books, let's add the Apocrypha, let's ask, add the Gnostic gospels, let's add the Shepherd of Hermas or the Didache, like other books have been candidates for these things too. But the books are like all these, like read them, like go look them up. And they're either known to be inauthentic or they teach doctrines that contradict the teaching of the biblical books, or they're just like, Hey, that's a perfectly fine book, but it just does not carry the authority of scripture. Like that's what's happened in each of these cases. Um, so there's some debate over the canonicity of some of them. Like a few of those that I mentioned have been like in the running at times, like early, early on, but early church ultimately decided, no, like we've got good reason to say this is not it. Right. And so, you know, when I bring up the Gnostic gospels, like, um, when Dan Brown wrote the Da Vinci code and it got made into a movie, like, um, which is, you know, clearly a fictional book. Right. Um, the idea is like pitched in this fictional storyline that gospel of Thomas, the gospel of Mary Magdalene, they show clear evidence that Jesus was married and, and like, the, the books were excluded from the new Testament because there was a bias from manipulative church leaders. But like, and these books are supposedly teaching feminism and stuff. But in reality, like the Gnostic Gospels don't compare to the New Testament writings at all. Um, so like not, not like not credible at all by comparison. So most of the Gospels were written much later than the accounts they record. And that's just not true of the New Testament books. Um, it's possible that the Gospel of Thomas was written in the first century, but very unlikely. Um, and the rest are all just much later than that. 
and these Gnostic texts were actually written in the second and third centuries. Um, and they reinterpret the life of Jesus through the lens of a worldview that doesn't fit the other four biblical gospels. Like that's why they were rejected. So here, here's what I will give you as homework. If you want assurance that books like the Gnostic gospels don't belong in our Bibles, I suggest just reading them. Like just do a Google search, Google the gospel of Thomas, Google the gospel of Mary Magdalene, um, uh, pretty available online, um, pretty quick read. And like, I'm biased, of course, but I think you're going to immediately see a qualitative difference between those writings and the biblical writings. So I'm convinced that's what makes the difference in the, it, like the difference between it is the inspiration and the authority of God. These, the, these biblical books that we've kept carry that authority of God and the other ones don't. So ultimately books in our Bible, I believe are completely unique. No other ancient documents measure up. And so how do we know, though, that God doesn't want us to add to our Bibles? Like, basically, like, um, one simple way to say it is, like, the Bible begins at the beginning and ends with the end. I don't think we need to be looking for more books that God's going to add to it later. So the Old Testament records how God set his plan of redemption into motion. It ends with a big cliffhanger, 400 years of silence. Um, In the Old Testament, God created humanity. Humanity failed. God made a promise to redeem the world. God gave the mission to Israel and then Israel failed. And we're left with this question, how will God's plan of redemption be accomplished? So cliffhanger at the end of the Old Testament, we're looking for something else. Then the New Testament comes, it starts answering that question by recording both like the climax of that plan and its consummation at the end of all things. So like God's word to us in the New Testament consists of the the word that he spoke to us in Christ in the last days. That's how Hebrews begins. Um, But since this like, authoritative word about Christ has come to us in the New Testament. And since the book of Revelation takes us right up to eternity future, like the question I have is what, what more do we need? What are we looking for? What are we waiting for? So Revelation then comes and it ends up with a warning not to add to the words of that prophecy. Now, I think like that definitely is a reference to um, Revelation and there's other warnings like that in the Old Testament. Um, but I think basically it's just saying, hey, this is my final word wrapping up all of human history doesn't nothing needs to be added to it. Okay, so I I don't think it um it doesn't work for God to have spoken a definitive word in the last days and then for Him later to say, hang on, I'm going to add a few more books in there. And and you know, like the Mormon Church will do that, and other people will do that, and um and there's things that are kind of get put on the level of Scripture in some circ- circumstances, but um th- these other books like they deny Scripture and they're kind of they just. They don't carry the authority uh, that the Word of God carries. And I'll just say, at least for me, that's my conviction. It's my experience. It's my research. But I'm saying that I'm very confident in that. And so the last question that I want to ask here is um, a sixth question. And, and that's this. What gives the Bible its authority? I've been appealing to that a lot. And this helps me out a lot. So basically, we've been examining the historical circumstances under which the Bible was written and compiled. Um, we've also though been considering the reasons that we can be confident that the Bible is trustworthy. Um, but here I want to say it's important to understand that our confidence in the Bible does not rest solely on historical evidence. Okay. There's some measure of circularity in all this. Studying the historical evidence can be helpful. We can see God's hand in the formation and preservation of his word, but in the end, no amount of historical evidence can dispel all of the uncertainty that we feel. I think that's an important thing to say, to throw in there. So, in other words, like historical studies are important, but they're not likely to prove conclusively which books should be considered part of the canon. So, I'm going to relate like an argument that I picked up from John Frame, 
Um, and, and basically, it's about how we can be sure of the Bible's genuine authority. And I, I love John Frame, and I love this argument, so I want to just run through it quickly, quickly here. John Frame believes that the Word of God is its own authority. All right, so you can hear circularity, but hang on. He believes the Word of God is its own authority. Now, so if we claim that the Word of God is our highest authority, then we can't appeal to some other source, like a church council or historical data, to say to verify it. Right? Um, the old, like they can't; those other things can't be the ultimate validation of the authority of the Bible. So, for that reason, John Frame argues that, like from like reasoning from biblical concepts and statements um, to confirm our canon. So there's a circularity to that, but that circularity is actually important uh, in John Frame's argument. So he says, like, why would we assume the Bible contains authority? So from the inception of the nation of Israel, God's people have always had a canon or a collection of authoritative writings through which God has governed his people. Initially, this was the Ten Commandments, then God added the whole Mosaic Law, then the Book of Joshua, then the writings and the prophets, etc., right? So, that canon started with the Ten Commandments, but got bigger, but it was always acknowledged to be like the canon. And so, throughout, like it says, like, no human beings are permitted to add to the canon. Like, we see that in Deuteronomy a couple of times. So, no human being can add to the canon, but God can. God himself can add to it, and he chose to add to the canon in specific ways at specific times. So not only did God give his people revelation, but he also providentially ensured that they would recognize this revelation as his words. So for an example that I've used in a previous session, when Abraham was told to sacrifice Isaac, he didn't have to wonder if the voice was God's, like he just knew that it was. Or when Moses heard God speaking from the burning bush, he somehow knew that this was God speaking to him. And when we come to the New Testament, we see the same pattern holds true. The writers seem to have been aware that they were writing scripture and their words were accepted as the word of God. We, we answered that with questions three and four above. Um, Frame also finds the purpose of God's revelation significant. So it was meant to create a covenant agreement with his people and to govern their lives. So basically God spoke, not just to like give people doctrines, right? But he spoke so that his people would hear and act. So, so John Frame is saying it's inconceivable that God would give his people revelation and then allow that revelation to be lost. Um, and so for these reasons and, and other reasons that John Frame goes into, he believes that we can trust the canon that we now possess. And I agree, you know, um, God's always possessed the ability to communicate with his people. And when God speaks, he, he doesn't have to wonder, like, like God's people, we don't have to sit here and wonder, like, is God really speaking to us? Like, they, we, God's people know his voice. He says that in John 10, 27, like we, God's people know his voice. And so because God speaks to his people so that they'll hear and act according to what he says, why would a God who is fully capable of effective communication allow his words to be lost or destroyed or perverted somehow? And so all of this, pretty long way to say, and, and, and long way, but still so much that I've left out. And if you really do want to dig in, I'd say jump into those books that I mentioned earlier. But I think we can be sure that our Bibles are the word of God because we have confidence in who God is, how he interacts with his people. Like that is simply um, the thing that gives me so much confidence personally. So I think confirming evidence is helpful, um, but I think ultimately like the authority comes from God himself and it it comes through the words that he speaks. If he wants to speak to us, his authority is going to be in those words that he speaks. And I think that's exactly what I find when I open up my Bible. Um, we find a loving, powerful, authoritative God speaking like loving, powerful, authoritative words to us and to his people. 
so this uh, this like side tangent um, in some ways is a tangent, in some ways it's not. Um, but you know, mentioning some of these things, it it can be a little disconcerting. And I want us to have um, you know, there's not a ton of practical application for the way that we open our Bibles and dig in on a daily basis, but it just gives us a little more confirmation. And hopefully in everything I've laid out there, um, it just gives you a, some thoughts to wrestle with, some things that maybe provide confirmation, or maybe it raises other questions. And um, these are great things to talk about, to discuss, to, to wonder about, ponder, process. Um, uh, if you have questions, the worst thing to do is just pretend that you don't, right? So dig into those. Um, look up a systematic theology. John Frames is phenomenal. Um, Wayne Grudem has a great section on it. Look at Lee Strobel. Look at John Maxwell. Like find, or I, I guess uh, Josh McDowell, right? Um, the evidence that demands a verdict. Like find those resources. They're out there and they'll they'll talk through things. You may not be satisfied by everything that someone else is satisfied by, but it's important for us to find the things that kind of settle ourselves. And what I just walked us through here is basically what settles me out and helps me to feel confident in the Word of God. So with that said, future sessions, we're going to jump back into um, our process for how do we sit down and try to get the most out of reading the Bible.